welcome to Fearonomics, the podcast which helps you confront and overcome your fears about the global economy. We'll be looking at the latest economic data, debunking myths and defining the risks that we need to watch out for, and of course those that we don't. The rate of growth of displaced people in the world is alarming. 100 million is the latest UNHCR estimate, which equals 1% of the global population. Absolutely staggering. This stark anti-record reflects the precarious state of the world we're in, the war on Ukraine, other conflicts, human rights violations, persecutions and violence are behind the unprecedented movement of people. At the same time as COVID restrictions are being lifted across the world, economic migration is expected to bounce back to pre-pandemic levels. For centuries, the world has been living with the idea that migration has to hurt us and bring the world down. But why? Why are we so afraid of migrants? This is what we'll be trying to find out today. My name is Jonathan Charles, and here with me, I've got Sergei Guria, Professor of Economics at Sciences Po in Paris, and Beata Yaborczyk, Professor of Economics at Oxford University, and the EBRD's Chief Economist. They'll be assessing the potential, the fears, and the myths around migration and refugees. Let's look at the context. Over the past decade, the West has been increasingly anxious about the political, social, and economic consequences of large population inflows. Despite the fact that most refugee host countries are low and middle income economies, such as Turkey or Jordan, the manipulation of the so-called refugee crisis has had a profound effect on shaping the Western inward looking policies, erection of walls and even Brexit. At the same time, the COVID pandemic has halted the movements of people, reversed migration trends and reinvented migration. According to the 2022 report of the International Migration Organization, the IMO, the vast majority of people continue to live in the countries in which they were born. Only one in 30 are migrants. The current global estimate is that there were around 281 million international migrants in the world in 2020, which equates to 3.6% of the global population. So let's look at the most common fears. The migrants or refugees are taking local jobs away. Migrants depress wages of native populations. Migrants are a burden on welfare systems. Migrants are associated with a higher level of crime. What would happen if we replace the word fear with gain in discussions of immigration policies, I wonder. Beata, Sergey, what fuels this amount of fear around migration? Beata first. Globalization and technological progress have led to structural changes in our economies. The Industrial Revolution took 100 years, but now changes on a similar scale are taking place within a decade. Gone is job security, gone is lifetime employment, gig economy and zero hour contracts are on the rise. And the risks are being pushed away from corporations and onto workers often low-skilled workers who are not well-equipped to deal with them. Inequality has grown tremendously. People fear that immigration will create more upheaval and more uncertainty in this already uncertain, unstable environment. And some of these fears are warranted. During the last 30 years, the number of migrants from developing countries to advanced economies has more than doubled. In 1990, migrants constituted 4% of the EU's population. Now they account for 10%. And inflows of migrants do affect labor markets and local workers. A large influx of unskilled migrants can depress the wages of low-skilled natives while increasing the wages of highly educated natives. And this exacerbates inequality, which already has been on the rise. 
Voters are also concerned that they may have to pay higher taxes as a consequence of low-skill immigration, and they worry about overcrowding of schools and other public services. Okay. Yes, I fully agree with Beata. When you uh, mentioned, Jonathan, that uh, migrants are a very small share of global population, about 3% of uh, the global population is foreign-born, and this number has not actually changed in the recent decades. Beata is correct that we see a great increase in number of migrants living in developed countries, and this number has been going up in the recent decades, and the reason for that is actually the process of development. People think that when the gap between poor and rich countries shrinks, fewer people will want to move. This is eventually going to be true, but in the beginning of this process, you have a different dynamic. The dynamic is that if a country is poor and it's growing richer, the gap between the poor country and the developed country remains very large. So people still want to move. However, the ability to finance the move increases. And when countries move from being very poor to poor or to middle income, the number of people who are able to move from those countries to say Europe or United States goes up. And that's why we see this process uh, developing in the recent decades. And this is something that is completely objective and it's very hard to uh, stop simply because the gaps between poor countries and developed countries are so large that migration pays off no matter which barriers you need to overcome to move. And that's why that's why we see this growth in migration. And I fully agree with Beata in, in, in terms of the analysis of the impacts of uh, migration. I would just add one thing. So Beata is right talking about the distributional impact of migration. But when we talk about the overall impact on the economy and society, we shouldn't forget that migrants are uh, not only taking the jobs in the countries where they move in, too, but they also spend in those countries. Well, some of them send money back, but they spend in those countries that they, they create new jobs. So on balance, uh, we don't see the aggregate negative impact of migration on receiving countries. Although, as Beata correctly said, there are some people in those countries who are hurt by uh, low-skill migration from poorer countries, and then some people who benefit. But overall, as economists would say, this is the uh, most important investment in global uh, welfare. If a person moves from a low-income economy where a migrant is less productive to a high-income economy where he's or she is more productive, uh, that increases global welfare by the amount that nothing else can. And there are studies which show that the same person moving from, say, India to the United States starts earning two and a half times more, even adjusting for person power um, uh, parity. And in that sense, in that sense, migration from poor to rich countries, well, it uh, hurts the sending countries because uh, these countries lose their best and brightest and most motivated. It hurts some people in receiving countries, but the benefits to migrants themselves are so huge that it pays off for all those uh, costs and tensions. And in that sense, migration in terms of overall increase of human welfare is a greatest contributor. Yes, there's a lot to dissect in those opening positions. I mean, understanding migration fears is a lot more complex than it actually seems. I think we've just discovered even in the past few minutes, I mean, our attitudes are often formed by external events, migratory flows, media coverage, political settings, political statements. I wonder about the helpful ways, and there are many, to look at migration and economic facts. And in a way, Sergey, you were just pointing out one of them just there, that actually migration can add 
to the economy of the country that migrants have gone to. Yes, Jonathan, uh, uh, referring to politics and to attitudes and to media coverage is very important. Uh, there is evidence that people in developed countries who are the recipients of migrants from uh, poorer countries. So people in developed countries have vastly distorted perceptions on how many migrants are in those countries. In uh, normal developed countries, say in France, uh, people think that there are 30% of migrants, while the reality is 10%. This is, this is not an exception, it's actually typical. And uh, that, of course, is shaped by media coverage and uh, politics. Now, when people actually encounter refugees, that creates empathy. There is a famous uh, contact hypothesis put forward by American sociologist uh, Gordon Alpert uh, 70 years ago, uh, which suggests that if uh, minority and majority talk to each other, work together on a long-term basis, uh, the stereotypes are being, uh, are being addressed and the majority uh, no longer has a stereotype towards a, a, towards a minority. And this is what we actually observe in many settings where refugees, even the recent uh, Syrian refugee crisis, arrive in Europe and are settled. And if, uh, if the natives see uh, not an overwhelming number of refugees, but a well-integrated managed refugees flows, there is no, uh, no rejection, no negative attitudes to refugees. On the other hand, there are many places where there are actually no refugees and no migrants, where anti-migrant uh, sentiment is being uh, stoked by, by the politicians. And sometimes these things are just conjured uh, from thin air. And there is a research on Austria where uh, uh, extreme right populist party, by referring to events which happened three and 400 years ago, the, uh, the Turkish-Austrian uh, wars, of 17th uh, century, uh, this, this uh, narrative has actually created support for anti-immigrant politics in places where you didn't really have immigrants. It's just, it's just the, this uh, memory of what has happened 300 years ago uh, helped uh, increase support for those uh, politicians. And in that sense, uh, a lot is uh, created from uh, in terms of narrative rather than driven by reality on the ground economic factors. Yes, that shows the long tail of some of these issues, doesn't it? Uh, Beata, what about the helpful ways look, of looking at migration and economic facts when it comes to migration? Well, Jonathan, populists shamelessly play on migration fears to further their political ends. Now, during the Brexit debate, you may recall that many in Britain were convinced that Turkey was just about to join the EU and tens of thousands of Turks were getting ready to migrate to Britain. So what needs to be done is we need to fight back with fact-checking, with correcting blatant lies and with showcasing contribution migrants make to the society. Now think of biotech vaccine. Uh, the founders of the company were migrants. Also, statistics speak for themselves. Relatively few people know how much STEM industries, that science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, rely on migrants. In the US, more than a third of STEM workers with doctoral degrees are foreign-born, as is a third of American Nobel Prize winners. 
So migration flows stimulate innovation by allowing people to move to places where they can use their talent in the most productive way. Something that Sergey has already alluded to by mentioning how much wages of migrants increase when they move from their home country to their new country. Obviously, with this uh, unprecedented number of displaced people, the high level of economic migration going on, likely to get uh, even more uh, of an increase in the years ahead for a whole load of reasons. Do you think we're going to witness a return to nationalist or populist uh, rhetoric as the answer to this? You know, it's already playing into politics. You know, we've mentioned Brexit already. It played into United States presidential politics. It's played into French politics. Well, what do you think about this, uh, Sergey? You know, we're going to see an upsurge in this sort of area. Yes, Jonathan, as you mentioned, during the COVID times, uh, we had a decline in migration flow simply, simply because the borders were closed. Uh, and today we are going to see the increase in migration again. And if uh, refugee flows, migration flows are not well managed and uh, refugees are not well integrated, we'll see the return to populist sentiment. And indeed, uh, we should brace ourselves for return of uh, populist rhetoric in the upcoming U.S. presidential election. So in that sense, we should be worried and we should uh, um, we should follow Beata's uh, advice uh, to address uh, the blatant lies populists use. Now, in its latest report, the International Organization for Migration states one of the key risk factors for migrants is disinformation, especially its spread across social media. And we see, obviously, the attempt to regulate social media platforms, but so far that's pretty limited and, and not very effective in stopping all sorts of disinformation. Um, what do you think is key to confronting this spread of disinformation? Maybe Beata, first of all. There's also disinformation on the part of potential migrants, right? We've talked so far about disinformation in the recipient countries, but the countries of origin also see the problem of misinformation. Academic studies show that potential migrants overestimate their future earnings and the prospects of obtaining a legal status in a destination country. Now, part of this disinformation comes from current migrants who tend to exaggerate their economic status when visiting their home country. Um, so here, providing reliable data to would-be migrants would help them make more informed decisions and presumably would discourage some people from leaving their home country. Sergey, you, you've alluded already just a few minutes ago to disinformation in a way, you know, when you talk about the fear is often not matched by the reality uh, that people have a, have a strange view often of what they think is really going on in migration. Um, what uh, do you think can be done to, to stop this? Uh, you're right, Jonathan, uh, mentioning the need to regulate social media. Social media is a very recent phenomenon. We live in the world of mobile broadband, internet, and the rise of mobile devices-based social media just for the last 10, 15 years. And social media are well-suited for disseminating outrageous uh, outrageous information. So when when you think which uh, which posts, uh, which images are more likely to be shared on, say, Facebook, of course, people don't want to share dull stuff. And uh, Facebook's business model is about attracting and keeping your attention. So uh, Facebook promotes sharing uh, exciting, sometimes outrageous information. So by definition, uh, the news 
which is not necessarily correct, but more exciting, uh, travels faster and broader. And in that sense, we need to invest more into slowing down the dissemination of false news. Now, social media themselves try to self-regulate. So basically, the way it works, say, in Facebook, Facebook has a, a, a machine learning algorithm, an artificial intelligence algorithm that identify posts which are more likely to be fake, and then uh, uh, asks a human uh, certified fake checkers to look into it. But uh, from what we see is this is not sufficient. It's not well-funded. It's not scaled up uh, sufficiently. And I'm pretty sure there'll be uh, more efforts to regulate social media by the state. Uh, and that needs to be done. We need to invest more in fact-checking. Uh, Facebook is, uh, is not interested in disseminating false information in the sense that that can backfire badly. Uh, and that would be more regulation, more penalties uh, associated with that. But Facebook's whole business model uh, based on advertising drives this, uh, drives this dissemination of false news. So it's a, it's a very tough uh, trade-off that uh, companies like Facebook face. And so they should be, uh, they should be uh, regulated more by the society to provide incentives uh, to shift their focus on to slowing down, slowing down, disseminating disinformation. And as you rightly said, this is key for understanding and for, uh, for informing the public about, about the true costs and benefits of migration and refugee crisis. Just very briefly, Sergey. I mean, listening to what you're saying there, you know, we all agree disinformation is in no one's interest, but I get the impression you're sort of hinting as well, it is here to stay. It's very difficult to stop. That's, that's exactly right. And uh, you mentioned populists before. And for populists, the social media provide an excellent platform uh, because it's a very uh, low cost uh, tool. It's uh, much easier to build a Twitter audience than uh, open up a newspaper or a TV station uh, where you would have journalists, uh, experts, fact checkers. On Twitter, it's much harder to do that. and. Uh, and in that sense, in that sense, it's very likely that populists will continue to use uh, modern social media to reach out to millions or tens of millions of of, uh, um, of uh, potential voters. So yes, it's here to stay, and uh, I think it is crucial for us to support efforts to somehow inform the public. And in many in many ways, that means uh, uh, regulating social media and providing fact checking. Let me remind you, you're listening to Fearonomics, which helps you confront and overcome your fears about the global economy. You can review us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and of course, share your ideas with us on Twitter at EBRD is our handle, hashtag Fearonomics. And our subject today is the Fearonomics of Migration with Sergei Guriev and BRT Yavorchik. Now, with the changing nature of globalization focused on more regional connections, perhaps even further away from the Western countries, do you think we're going to see a shift in migration patterns, Beata, perhaps mirroring some of these changes that we're going to see in trade? I personally doubt this, Jonathan. Migration is driven by the forces of gravity. Richer countries and nearby countries tend to attract a disproportionate number of migrants. When discussing migration, most commentators focus on the US and Western Europe forgetting that Poland hosted 1.5 million Ukrainian migrants prior to the war, and then almost 4 million refugees. Russia used to be a popular destination among economic migrants from Central Asia. And you already mentioned Turkey, which is home to the largest 
population of refugees in the world. I doubt this is going to change very much going forward. Uh, and what about some of the other changes we're seeing in global economics? You know, one thinks, for example, of more uh, offshoring of services. We have a lot, obviously, of offshoring of, uh, of manufacturing. There's been some offshoring of services, but perhaps in future, even more offshoring of services might, might be a way forward. Do you think that helps uh, in the future of migration? Does it keep people in countries? I think it could. Right? Migration is a form of services exports. Workers go to a foreign country to provide services to natives. So now that we see a shift to working from home, and if this shift will encourage firms to look for remote workers abroad, uh, remote workers may choose to stay at home rather than become economic migrants. So employing foreign remote workers can become a substitute for inward migration. And this may be a particularly attractive option for firms in the post-Brexit Britain, for whom bringing EU nationals to the UK has become much more burdensome. Countries often have special tax provision for so-called cross-border workers. For instance, such provisions exist between the UK and Ireland or Switzerland and Germany. Um, so they typically apply to neighboring countries. But perhaps now is the time to think about special tax regimes for cross-border remote workers. Yes, I know quite a few countries are looking at some of these issues, aren't they? Uh, Sergey, I saw you nodding there. Yes, I, I fully agree. I fully agree with Beata. And uh, that is especially true in the post-COVID world when uh, suddenly uh, people discovered that uh, and companies discovered that uh, if you have a, a remote worker sitting in a suburb of a big city like London, you may as well have somebody sitting and working for you somewhere in Krakow or in Tashkent. And in that sense, uh, in that sense, we will see an increase in remote work and cross-border workers. I would mention one thing uh, related to your initial question about uh, the correlation between migration and export links. So indeed, as Viada said, gravity matters in both trade and migration, but sometimes migration follows uh, historical accidents. And then these uh, connections stick because basically if, if uh, people from your country settled in that American state or in that US country, uh, sorry, EU country, uh, then uh, the next wave of migrants is more likely to arrive at the very same location. So I'll give a Polish example actually, where a Pol Polish uh, pilots fought with the uh, Royal Air Force in the World War II. And many of them uh, wisely stayed in the United Kingdom. Uh, UK government gave them a uh, uh, place to live and provided citizenship. And actually the new wave of migration uh, after uh, Poland joined EU was disproportionately targeting those locations where the previous generation of Poles uh, stayed. And in that sense, in that sense, you see how a historical accident, not extremely connected to gravity, uh, drove many Poles to various places uh, uh, determined by uh, history rather than gravity. Indeed, I grew up in one of those places, actually, in the 60s and uh, 70s, where the Poles congregated uh, after the Second World War, which was Nottingham, actually, uh, was a big centre of uh, Polish migration after the Second World War. And, uh, and then, of course, as you say, uh, because there was already an established community, it continued uh, after... Uh, after the uh, entry of uh, Poland into the European Union and the movement that uh, that, that allowed. Um, okay, let's take a look at some of the core fears around migration. Let's confront them head on 
so first question, do migrants take the jobs away from locals? Sergey. Well, uh, they do from some and they create jobs for others. And as I said, on the aggregate, uh, on the aggregate, this, uh, the impact is, uh, is probably close to zero. Um, and there are various studies that depends on context, that depends on how the labor market institutions work. But uh, overall, it's, uh, uh, it depends. Uh, but in some cases, yes, uh, migrants uh, increase, uh, increase competition for jobs in a particular segment. So if uh, there are migrants which, uh, which are low-skilled, the low-skilled natives would be, would be worried about this. And this is where actually domestic migration may help. There is a famous study of uh, Mariel, uh, Mariel Boatlift. Uh, uh, this study was carried out by, uh, by um, a Nobel Prize winner, uh, David Card. Uh, when Cubans, uh, Cubans left Cuba and arrived in Florida in great numbers, so, uh, suddenly uh, the economists discovered that unemployment in Cuba didn't go up because it was, a, it was a balancing act within the United States, internal migration within the United States. But uh, indeed we saw that uh, uh, a huge influx of Cuban migrants into Florida did not increase unemployment in Florida. Okay, let's have a look at two other tropes uh, which are out there. Um, do migrants actually suppress wages? And do they have adverse impact on public finances? Beata. So starting with the first question, migrants and natives do compete. Uh, and this is nicely illustrated in a study by George Borjas, who analyzed the uh, episode of inflows of Cubans to Miami in 1980s, but who also looked at the influx of Russian Jews to Israel after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And what's very nice about these two episodes that they constitute a sizable shock for the recipient locations, but the nature of the shock was very different. Cuban migrants tended to be low-skilled, mostly high school dropouts, while Soviet emigres tended to have university degrees. And the results of the analysis were very much in line with economic theory. Um, the influx of migrants ne negatively affected wages of, of natives competing with them, but had a positive impact on natives with complementary skills. So in other words, influx of Cubans lowered wages of native high school dropouts in Miami, but had a positive effect on wages on highly skilled inhabitants of Miami. In contrast, uh, the arrival of a large number of university-educated Soviet emigres had a negative effect on the wages of college-educated Israelis and a positive effect on low-skill wages um, in Israel. So migration has distributional consequences. Now, moving on to the fiscal implications. Immigration can have positive implications in the fiscal space. Think about pay-as-you-go pension programs, where those who are currently employed pay contributions to finance pensions of those who are currently retired. Uh, as population ages, the viability of these programs is being threatened. But because immigrants tend to be younger than the natives, and because they tend to have higher fertility rates, immigration can offset the fiscal effect of aging populations. 
So, so let's stick with that thought on on uh, how to influence uh, positive attitudes. Now, also, you know, during the COVID crisis, you know, we witnessed major shortages in quite a few essential roles like healthcare. There was a lot of appreciation for migrants who were in those roles. Do you think those sort of experiences, Sergey, have the, the potential to influence positive attitudes towards uh, migration, towards immigration? Uh, that's exactly true, and I, I, I hope that the society will wake up to the reality that many essential roles are performed by migrants, uh, by people who actually are not paid well, but contribute to the well-being of the society to, uh, in a great extent. And in that sense, I hope that this will help to slow down the resurgence of uh, populists when the borders reopen. Obviously, you know, we're, we're seeing a major migration wave in the European Union at the moment as a result of uh, the war in uh, Ukraine. Uh, and we've seen a lot of compassion from a lot of societies, a lot of warm welcome. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, it tends to depend, I, I get part of the, the impression, it tends to depend on what migrants we're talking about. We didn't see that with the issues faced uh, with Afghans. Uh, who went through a pretty awful experience, obviously, with the, the fall of Kabul and the fall of their country to the Taliban. There wasn't that uh, open door uh, in many, many countries to Afghans, but we're seeing it uh, for Ukrainians. But of course, that may change. You know, obviously, integration is really important and what states do to, to integrate uh, large uh, refugee waves and what happens when that support runs out. What do you, how do you assess that, Beata? Well, so thinking about the war on Ukraine, right, this war has been going on for more than 100 days now with little prospect for a quick resolution of the conflict. And I think at this point, both refugees and governments are realizing that the time for temporary solutions is over. And it is now time to think about um, something somewhat more permanent. Um, Poland received almost 4 million refugees but by now, almost 2 million of them returned home, encouraged by a relatively stable situation in the Western and Central Ukraine. Um, there are surveys um, that were done among refugees asking them for the reasons for their decisions. And they show that both pull and push factors matter. So starting with the pull factors, refugees obviously miss their family members, they miss their friends who stayed behind, um, they miss their home country. Many are also uh, very enthusiastic about participating in the reconstruction effort. And then there's the push side. Some refugees find it difficult to adjust to a life in a foreign country, especially if they don't speak the language or don't have the skills that would allow them to find jobs easily. Think about lawyers or accountants. Um, the legal system and the accounting regulations in Ukraine are very different than in Poland. So the skills that you bring from abroad are immediately not transferable. And it's much difficult for you as a refugee um, to find a job with a similar social status uh, to the job that you have back home. Um, so Moreover, um, the Polish government at the moment is ending support to, for Polish families who are hosting refugees. Um, this support will run out 
at the end of the month. Um, the tourism season is beginning. So now hotels in resorts um, would want to focus on tourism rather than on hosting refugees. And that means that many refugees may either have to find their own accommodation or use the government centers, which certainly will be less attractive uh, as places to stay. So I think this natural process um, will lead to a selection. Some people will choose to stay and some people will decide now is the time to go back. Quite interesting, isn't it? You know, listening to that, I, I sort of feel uh, governments are okay on short-term response, uh, but medium and long-term response is much more difficult. Uh, Sergey, how, how do you see this integration question? I think I think it's a, the most important question. And if uh, my, migrants are well integrated, uh, the uh, political backlash effect is uh, minimized. And uh, if you don't see governments doing a good job, or society is doing a good job in um, integrating migrants, there is, there is an opportunity for populists to uh, use the migrant and the refugee flows. Uh, right now, indeed, as Beata said, uh, the uh, social reaction to the influx of Ukrainian refugees is very different from what we saw before in 2015-16 uh, during the Syrian refugee crisis. And uh, part of that is probably driven by um, uh, the uh, cultural um, culture, cultural dif differences and cultural similarities, which are quite different in those two episodes. The other thing is, of course, that uh, Ukrainian refugees emphasize that this is a temporary move uh, these are not moves by families. The families are split because men are staying back in Ukraine. And so most of the Ukrainian refugees are women and children who plan to go back. And as Beata has said, some have already gone back. And uh, 80 to 90 percent, judging by the service, will go back when the situation normalizes, uh, whenever that happens. And in that sense, uh, there is a lot of sympathy towards towards uh, Ukrainian refugees in Europe, which has been different in previous waves of migration. But yes, um, I think uh, we uh, should get used to the issue that unfortunately this is not first and last uh, uh, migration crisis. Uh, already in the last decade, we've seen several waves like this. And unfortunately, with the additional conflicts that uh, happen in European neighbourhood, we may see more. And we've talked in uh, previous episodes of this podcast about the weaponization of globalization, And of course, one manifestation is the use of refugees as a weapon on, on borders. And in a way, you could argue the Ukrainian wave of refugees. You know, President Putin knew when he attacked Ukraine, it would cause a refugee crisis and would cause problems for Western Europe. That could be seen as a weaponization. Uh, of refugees. We saw it, of course, on the Belarus border over the past couple of years, these incidents where Belarus was pushing migrants towards the European Union. How does this shape attitudes towards refugees, Sergei? Well, I, I think um, I think the uh, episode last year at the Belarus-European border was extremely, uh, extremely worrisome. And indeed, it was very cynical, very brutal. And uh, and this is something that shows you the real face of some of those political leaders in non-democratic countries. Uh, for me, what's uh, happening today with the weaponization of uh, migration is uh, first and foremost, the worry about the grain crisis. Uh, as I said, uh, the 
influx of a huge number of Ukrainian refugees does not create a political uh, crisis in Europe. But the influx of migrants from Mediterranean, uh, from the other side of Mediterranean may. And this is what the Russian government is talking about quite openly, saying that we will block exports from Ukraine, exports from grain from Ukraine will not reach uh, uh, Middle East and North Africa in those countries that will result food, in food shortages and higher bread prices, thus political instability, thus uh, many more refugees, and that will be a huge problem for Europe. I'm, I'm just quoting, I'm not making this up, I'm quoting interviews of high-level officials in Russia, including Mr. Putin's confidante, the Secretary of Security uh, Council of Russia, Mr. Patrushev. And this is clear weaponization of migration. And this is this is what, unfortunately, uh, we are facing in some of the Europe's uh, non uh, non democratic members. We also remember uh, the discussions with uh, President Erdogan, who also at times would say, "If Europe doesn't do this, this, and that, I will break the uh, Europe-Turkey Pact on hosting." Syrian refugees, and this is unfortunately the reality when people's fates are uh, thrown in as a as a game piece uh, in, uh, in geopolitical or uh, foreign policy negotiations. Yes, they use as pawns, aren't they? I mean, some some of the countries where uh, the EBRD operates, Beata, you know, having experienced brain drain, are very welcoming to highly skilled Ukrainian refugees. I mean, the other, the other thing is, of course, many Western European countries, you know, have aging workforces. They need younger younger workers and Ukrainians will, will fit into the workforce there. Do you think this new wave of refugees that we're seeing can actually help economic growth, diversify some economies? Um, absolutely. Now, what's also different about this wave is the reaction of the recipient countries. Uh, the EU, is allowing Ukrainian refugees to work legally. While in most cases, in previous uh, refugee episodes, um, the newly arrived were stuck in that limbo when they were waiting for a month, if not years, for their case to be resolved while not having the right to work. So already the, the policies are encouraging integration. International data show that migrants tend to have more education than the average person in their home country. They tend to be healthier, they tend to be more adaptable, they tend to be more willing to take risks. Um, studies show that migrants are more likely than natives to establish new firms of all sizes, from startups to future large corporations. So presence of migrants stimulates productivity growth, stimulates innovation, and this is particularly important in countries that are getting old before getting rich, like Eastern Europe. Now, let, let's look at another aspect of this. The, inter the Intergovernmental uh, Panel on Climate Change, uh, the IPCC, has called climate change a threat multiplier that puts uh, compound pressure on people to move within or outside country borders. In other words, you know, climate change is going to bring more migration. We all know that. It is, it is quite likely. So do we need new laws or, or other ways of facilitating a special status for migrants and refugees in the future? We are going to see climate refugees, Sergei. Yes, I think I think this this problem is not sufficiently discussed. Uh, there are estimates that uh, we are going to see 200 million uh, climate refugees, and uh, I don't think uh, we need to have special status for climate refugees. Even though 
Of course, uh, there is a reason to treat those refugees uh, differently in the sense that they are uh, suffering because of a global inability to address a global problem. So emissions in the US uh, may create problems in Nigeria. Uh, but um, the other hand, on the other hand, I think the most important reaction is to indeed uh, get our act together and act on climate to make sure that uh, these people are not displaced because of uh, uh, because of climate change. In that sense, I think uh, we should we should help uh, we should help address the climate change rather than to uh, create a new special status. On the other hand, as I said, there is a moral justification for thinking about. Uh, climate refugees, uh, climate refugees, a special kind of refugees. On the other hand, um, of course, it's very hard to differentiate those from economic migrants. Beata. I absolutely agree with Sergey. Um, we need to give more prominence to migration in the public debate about climate change. If we don't do enough uh, about climate change, about adaptation to climate change, particularly in the developing world, we are going to see an explosion of irregular migration. And people who are hesitant to take action on the climate front, thinking that you know, they can free ride, actually are not realizing they, that they themselves will be affected by huge inflows of irregular migrants to their countries. Okay, let's uh, try to sum up here. I mean, let me come back to my initial question. What would happen if we replace the word fear with gain in discussions of immigration policies? We try to change the way we talk about this, Sergey. Yes, I think it's, it's important to reframe the discussion, to remember that migration in terms of global welfare is actually the best thing that may happen in terms of uh, raising uh, incomes of average uh, uh, citizens, uh, of, of an average citizen of humanity. Uh, on the other hand, migration should be better managed. And this discussion in that sense should be changed in uh, from uh, how to limit migration, how to stop migration, into how to benefit from migration, how to restructure integration of refugees and migrants so that they uh, add to the economic growth of the countries they come to. And uh, that is possible. And that's how Beata has discussed, has already happened in many in many developed countries. So this, this is uh, what needs to be changed. Another thing which needs to be changed is a more informed discussion about migration. Um, addressing the myths and stereotypes about, about migra migrants and refugees that unfortunately are propagated by uh, often dishonest uh, populist politicians, and that, that needs to be addressed as well. Now, one thing I would mention is whatever we do, migration is going to stay with us. For the reasons I, I, I discussed in the very beginning, as long as we have this huge gap between poor and rich countries, which is diminishing over time, but it's going to stay with us for decades, if not a whole century. Uh, that means there'll be more and more migrants uh, coming simply because the incentives to migrate will remain huge. And, and Beata, changing the rhetoric, reframing is all very important. Perhaps reframing as well, talk about the kind of migration we actually need. Well, it's, it's a hard sell, right? I, I think we would be preaching to the choir. Highly skilled workers already see the benefits of migration in terms of lower costs of services provided by foreign nannies, builders, and cleaners. Native low-skilled workers 
typically don't object to bringing in foreign physicians or nuclear scientists. But each group objects to competition from migrants who have similar skills, right? And, you know, it's not easy to practice medicine or law in a foreign country. It's not easy to enter the UK if you are a low-skilled worker. Uh, but making people see the big picture uh, requires a lot of effort, and it's not something that comes to most people naturally. Thank you very much, uh, Beata and Sergey. I mean, I, you know, I, I think listening to all of this, it's pretty clear migration is here with us to stay for a very, very long period, perhaps even intensifying as climate change uh, hits countries uh, and other things hit countries. And that means obviously the fears are here to stay as well because the rhetoric will still be there. Uh, and it's clearly going to be a, a major task to turn around the way people think about migration. But there is absolutely clear, you know, the economics point that way, don't the economics point to the fact that migration does benefit countries. And I think a little more focus on that. Uh, would probably help this debate. Thank you very much. Thank you uh, to you as well for listening to Fearonomics. It is the podcast where together with Beata and Sergey, we help you confront and overcome those fears about the global economy. You can review us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from and share your ideas with us on Twitter at EBRD, hashtag Fearonomics. See you next time. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by the EBRD. We'll be back soon with the next episode. In the meantime, remember to review and rate us. It will help others to find us. Thank you and goodbye.